Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Elsa Lignos joins right now, Global Head of FX Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. And we can go to her physics at Cambridge and look at 14 topics. We're not going to do that, Elsa. I want to look at the one true thing you're focused on, which is your ECB. You've provided huge research over the last decade on ECB. What does Lagarde do? Is, there, is her degrees of freedom so shrunk down that she has limited choice April 14th? So at this stage, they'll be doing very little. Um, they're setting ourselves up for a normalization coming further in the year. But I think what gets really interesting is what they do further out, because the market is pricing hikes, and, and it's clear that's the direction of travel. But the question is, how far? Do we just get to zero and stop? Do we go any further than that? And the reality is that unlike the US, where you have this really strong domestic demand, mm -hmm. in Europe, it's a bit more about inflation without as much strength in the economy. How do you respond to the certitude that they will raise rates, uh, begin to raise rates or get out front of raising rates to keep up with the Fed? Well, the reality is they're not going to keep up with the Fed. And I think that's what's going to just give increasing support to the US dollar as the year goes on. I mean, our call for, for euro dollar is still a, a trough around 107 and quite comfortable with that. But, you know, if I had to look at where the risks lie around that, you know, unless the Fed changes course or, you know, something happens to derail the US tightening, and it may well happen later on in the year, um, if things turn out as markets are priced at the moment, we're going to have a really significant yield advantage for the US over the euro area by the end of the year. And that in itself, will be very meaningful for the currency. Elsa, what's the ramification for the dollar of this balance sheet reduction that we're trying to game out and coming up with question marks? So I think it's a little bit more indirect than most people perhaps might think, um, because all of our research historically has found that there's no one-for-one -one link between the size of a central bank's balance sheet and the domestic currency. A lot of it depends on the status of the currency as a haven or as a risk proxy. And because in the case of the dollar at the moment it is trading as a bit more of a haven, you do tend to find that if equities sell off, the dollar finds a little bit of a boost. Um, to the extent that the market, like you said earlier, is not necessarily priced for a full one point one trillion of reduction in balance sheet um, per year, you may well see that weighing on equities and boosting the dollar as a result. Elsa, you talk about the global picture for the currency. And so I have to go to a philosophical point, especially as you see China start to pay for coal from Russia in UN. And you start to get this concern, especially as US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen yesterday said that they could actually, uh, actually impose some sanctions similar to what they did on Russia to China should they invade Taiwan. How much are you looking at the diminishing of the dollar's place as a result of what some people are saying, the weaponization of its clout on the global financial system. 
Right. You know, a lot of what we've seen with Russia in some ways has been unprecedented. But I think the key task is what's going to take its place. We had a really interesting conversation about this exact topic um, just a few hours ago with a client talking about de-dollarization. And there are two big obstacles, I think, for China. One is the closed capital account, you know, the fact that they don't allow free unfettered access to their capital markets. And the second is liquidity and the ability to hedge exposure via the US dollar um, or via dollar leg funding markets. So I think until you get a very broad shift on both those topics, you're not really going to see a proper challenger. Of course, it's going to happen over the next decade or 15 years, but most investors don't think on that horizon. Also, the bet here is on all these currencies amid massive uncertainty. Can you make a big figure bet on dollar or a big figure bet on DXY or the Bloomberg dollar index? Is that even feasible now? I've got to say, Tom, we've had a lot of success this year with quite short-term tactical trades. Um, it's definitely paid off a lot better than trying to kind of position for those big longer-term trends. Uh, you know, at the moment, I think we've been watching euro dollar kind of bounce around in that range we obviously have the french election coming up that's attracting a lot more interest and attention my bias longer term is still for a grind lower um, but clearly there's a lot of risks around that i look at the pacific rim and you know uh, uh, lisa mentions china and the challenges there as well is there an opportunity a surprise opportunity in the pacific rim here given the covid story in china given sort of a a pacific rim gloom out there where's that opportunity yeah, it's a really interesting question because actually I see quite a lot of optimism um, baked into parts of the Pacific Rim. You know, if you look at the Australian dollar, even the New Zealand dollar, we model it based on the usual fundamental drivers, two-year yields, commodity prices, and so on. And actually for the last few months, there's been this big unexplained residual. So a lot of optimism kind of getting baked in um, to the top side. I do think that as the year goes on, you know, if the Fed is really going to deliver as much as it says it will or as much as markets expect it might, um, then that yield advantage for the U.S. is going to undermine not just the Pacific Rim, but global currencies more broadly. Elsa, before we let you go, you were talking about some of your conversations with clients. What are the biggest concerns for clients right now? What is their biggest uh, worry that they present to you? You know, I think there are a number of questions, topics on people's minds. Um, clearly, you're looking at the situation in Ukraine. Everybody's sensitive to the fact that it can worsen materially um, at very short notice. Um, it's a political decision what extent of sanctions are imposed, and, and that political pressure for further sanctions could change. You know, beyond that, I think people are a little bit perplexed, you know, looking at the relative strength of equity markets, for example, and, and kind of scratching their heads trying to figure out where that's coming from. Granted, you know, I'm talking to macro investors, so probably if you speak to an equity investor, they feel a lot more comfortable with it. Um, but there's certainly a lot of anticipation of perhaps some weakness further out the line. Asselinos, thank you, FRBC. Nobody owns it for almost a decade like Alina Polyakova. When you are at Berkeley and write a thesis on the dark side of European integration, you are a decade out front on the dark side of this war. Professor, thank you so much for joining us this morning with the Center for European Policy Analysis. Alina, cut to the chase. You nailed this 10 years ago. How dark is this war and what does Ukraine have to do about it? Oh, look, uh, unfortunately, the, the threat that is Russia, we now know we tried to ignore it and we just can't. 
you know, in 2014, Russia invaded Crimea and then, you know, invaded Russia's, uh, sorry, Ukraine's east in the Donbass. Uh, we put sanctions on Russia. Obviously, sanctions didn't change Putin's calculus. And here we are. Uh, this is the most significant, right. uh, most brutal war since we've seen since World War II. Um, and it is a dark moment for Europe. Absolutely, it's a dark moment for all of us, even here in the United States. Alina, I've got John Bolton on the right and Alina Farkas working with Obama on the left, both in agreement that we way overestimate the ability to start World War III. Do you agree with them that we were overwrought in our worries about the ghosts of 1939? Uh, you know, it is rare to have someone like Bolton and uh, Evelyn, uh, whom I know as well, uh, to agree on this issue. But it just tells you how, um, at the end of the day, you know, we are so worried about escalating and uh, worrying about what will Putin do if we give the Ukrainians more weapons, what will Putin do if we give the Ukrainians fighter jets. But, you know, the truth is, uh, we can't predict what Putin will do. And we should be worrying more about how do we ensure that Europe is whole free and at peace? How do we ensure the United States um, isn't going to get pulled in with troops and things of that nature into the war? And the best way to do that is to give, you know, as, as former Mr. Kuleba said, to give the Ukrainians absolutely everything they need to beat Putin in Ukraine so we don't have to fight him as NATO in Poland or the Baltic states. Because unfortunately, if Putin isn't stopped in Ukraine, there is a very good chance that he'll take that as an opportunity to keep going forward, keep going further into Europe. Alina, did the sanctions work at a time when a lot of the opposition to Vladimir Putin within Russia has been squelched, where protests aren't really working if everyone's hauled off to jail or forced to leave the country? You know, economic sanctions, just historically speaking, especially with Russia, have never worked to change you know, short-term military behavior on the ground. You know, looking back at 2014, uh, when Russia uh, invaded and Crimea, we imposed some significant sanctions on Russia, but it didn't change Putin's calculus. How do we know that? Because he invaded Ukraine eight years later. So now we have uh, an incredibly significant uh, round of sanctions that we've imposed on Russia. We've never tried this before. It's affecting the global economy. The Russian economy is not like North Korea or Iran. It's, it's significant. And we're seeing some of the effects of that, you know, in grain prices and oil prices, obviously. But sanctions are a long-term tool. In themselves, they will not change what's happening day in, day out on the battlefield. For that, we need the military and security assistance sanctions in themselves won't change behavior. And at the end of the day, the elite, the oligarchs that are close to Putin, they're not breaking ranks. Um, they're staying loyal to Mr. Putin, and I don't think that's going to change. This is a really important point. The sanctions are not helping in the near term when it comes to uh, the day in, day out of the on-the-ground military actions. If that's the case, do policymakers realize that? Do they sort of recognize that? And if so, what are they doing to actually affect that at a time when they're talking about war crimes? Well, absolutely. I do think there's a recognition that sanctions have a way of taking a long time to work because we've never tried this level of economic sanctions in a country as large as Russia. We're still waiting to see how they will all interlock and play out. Right now, the strategy is two-pronged. It's one, to make it really hard for Russia to sustain the war effort financially. 
uh, force Russia potentially into default. This seems to be what the United States is pursuing right now. Close all avenues of financing for the Russian government so they can no longer pay down on their debts. But, you know, they'll have a 30-day grace period if they even uh, stop payments on their debts. So it's really not a short-term solution. So the second prong of the strategy has to be in making sure that you know we are supplying Ukrainians of what they need on the ground. I mean, and together, that should contain Russia if we do it rapidly, if we do what it takes, and if we don't, you know, kind of pursue a very cautious, tentative policy where, you know, we may do X, we won't do Y. So if we go in full, we give the Ukrainians what they're asking for, we ramp up those economic sanctions, you know, the war will eventually have to come to a halt. But, you know, eventually, how many more deaths will that mean? How many more brutal images are we going to see, like we've been seeing last couple of days? Uh, that's really the where we are right now, calculating those costs, and it's it's painful. It's quite painful. Incredibly painful for the people of Ukraine. Alina, thank you. <laughs> Alina Polyakova there of the Centre for European Policy Analysis. Olivier Blanchard joins us uh, this morning. Professor Blanchard, thank you so much for joining us. You were just out at Washington University with all of the heritage of Murray Weidenbaum and all of the optimism of Washington University and growth. Can you be optimistic about the American economic experiment at this time? It depends which one, but the, the current one, the one we're all thinking about is how we're going to basically decrease inflation and get back to, to a lower level. And that, uh, I'm not as optimistic as, as, uh, as most people. I still think it's going to be very, very tough. Um, I think inflation has a lot of momentum. I think wage growth is, you know, there's a very tight labor market. Wage growth is very strong. The Fed is going to have a very hard time slowing down the machine. And it has to admit that it has to slow the machine a lot. And we don't want a recession. But, you know, there's this term called growth recession. I think that this will have to come with some increase in unemployment and maybe some increase in rates beyond what is uh, currently priced in. With all of your work, and particularly with the fire-powered MIT in the 70s, you lived the dismal 70s in the debate over entrenched inflation. You have a chart at Peterson Institute of the seven- or eight-year battle to extract ourselves from 1975. Is that our future out to 2030? No, no, it's, no it's the past. It's not the future, but it's a warning. Uh, you know, basically what happened is that the Fed just delayed doing uh, what it had to do, and Paul Volcker came very late in the game and just went at it. But he had to increase rates by uh, 1,300 basis points uh, to actually get uh, to where he wanted. We're not going to go there. The Fed is much smarter. Inflation expectations are not as bad. But, you know, the hope that we can do all this by having rates going to 2.5 or even 3, I think is, is a hope, not, not in my, my book a forecast. The hope is underscored by the mystery of some of the tools that the Fed is using, and I'm thinking most uh, importantly of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, possibly reducing it by $1.1 trillion over a year. How much do we understand how this reduces inflation? 
well, you know, it's likely to make the long rates a bit higher than they would otherwise be. Uh, so to the extent that long rates affect activity, that's going to basically slow down again the, uh, the machine. And that's the way you reduce inflation, is basically by making the labor market less tight than it is. Now, exactly how it works, I think when it comes to the policy rate, I think we have some understanding of how it affects the economy. When it comes to QE or QT now, uh, I think we, we know much less. And uh, if I were the Fed, I would denounce some path, but not feel that I'm committed to it if it turns out to be the stronger, weaker than expected. Do you think we're heading into a period of time where inflation is structurally higher than it has been over the previous few decades because of deglobalization and because of some of the shifts that we've seen uh, that were accelerated during the pandemic? No, I don't think so. I don't think there's any close link, say, between productivity growth or globalization or any of these structural elements and the rate of inflation that the economy has. The rate of inflation can be anything. Uh, you just have to, to have it flat. You basically have to operate the economy at full employment, not hotter than that, not colder than that, but you can have any rate of inflation you want. Olivier, you have lived the vogues and the religions of the moment. You and I remember where the world stopped. I believe it was on a Thursday afternoon at 3 p.m. And we'd all count M1, M2, M3. There's been any number of other religions of economics. What's the religion right now that we need to be aware of, that we need to fear? Well, I, I was never kind of in the M1, M2, M3 religion. I always thought that was that was a religion and not 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 uh, not science. Uh, I think you know the way to think about how monetary policy works is to have to you look at the yield curve, and some of the uh, of economic activity depends on the short end of the curve. Some of economic activity depends on the long end, the mortgage rates, and basically the higher the yield curve, uh, the more. Uh, tightening case. Uh, I think that, you know, if I had to choose one object, as opposed to say M1 or M2 or whatever, I would say just look at the yield curve. And the yield curve, I think, is telling us rates are going to go up for a while, then maybe they'll come down a bit, at least in adjusted for inflation. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's, you know, that's the tool that the Fed has. I mean, in the old days, it only played, you know, at the short end. Now it plays all the way through the yield curve, but that's the object I think we have to look at. What's the tool of real yields, Olivier? And I talk about this as the real yields, the inflation-adjusted yield on 10-year treasuries moves to the highest, the least negative, I should say, going back to March of 2020. Yes, I mean, you have to realize that we're still in, in an era of very, very low real rates. Uh, at the short end of the yield curve, real rates are very large negative. At the long end, they are less negative than they used to. I think they are getting closer to zero. Uh, I think that's what's needed to get the economy going in the long run. We don't exactly know what the long run equilibrium rate, if you want to call it this way, is, but it's probably around zero at this point. So if we were, you know, if we are cruising along with no more inflation than target, then I would say zero is probably the right number. But we have, before we get there, we have to get inflation down. So we have to go above zero in terms of uh, real right. rates. Olivia, we've got to leave it there. Thank you so much. Really looking forward to your work with the Peterson Institute, particularly on the new inflation level. Professor Blanchard.
Right now we hold court with his colleague, Savita Subramanian, head of equity and derivative strategy at B of A. Buried in your notes, Savita, is the mathiness of your Berkeley, which is follow the money, follow the cash. To borrow from Colbert, it's a cashiness moment. How much cash is our cashiness cash? <laughs> Well, listen, I think that what we're seeing in the in the overall investment landscape is a reallocation towards the short end of the curve. I mean, we've seen it with Wall Street strategists. They amped up their cash uh, uh, recommended cash allocations and took down equity allocations. I think that's actually net bullish for equities, because what we found is that when Wall Street gets bearish, that's generally a sign to get bullish. But when you think about the overall market, I think the reason that you want to buy stocks right now is the cashiness of the market. And, you know, the good the good news about the government and the, the Fed being in debt is that they passed on a whole bunch of liquidity to consumers and corporates, something like 19 trillion dollars of cash went from the public sector to consumers and corporates. And that's good. that cash, like you said, is going to be worth, it's going from worthless right now, yieldless, to 3% by the end of the year. That's a huge move in terms of the return profile, especially against a backdrop where we don't think that equities are going to return anything uh, close to that on a, on a longer-term basis. Um, so I think all of this conspires to create an environment where some equities are going to do well, and those are the most cashy of the equities. And, um, and we can talk about sectors in a moment, but I think that there are a lot of parts of the S&P 500 that look incredibly attractive from a free cash flow perspective and are also relatively inexpensive versus, say, tech or, you know, high growth stocks at this point. Savita, that takes us straight to energy. Why stick with it yes. after the massive move we've had here today? Stick with energy. I know it sounds crazy because the sector has basically doubled or tripled. But, you know, look, if you look at, at, at the world around us, everybody still hates energy. And um, what we found in our work is that energy is still a massive underweight in the average long only portfolio. Same underweight that we started last year with something close to you know, over a 10 percent underweight. But the sector has basically doubled in its size in the benchmark. So last year, it didn't necessarily hurt to be out of the best performing sector. This year, it's probably going to hurt a lot more. And our view is that energy is still incredibly inexpensive, still offers very high free cash flow, real free cash flow relative to other sectors. Um, the, free, the, the earnings have kept up with its price moves. And it's, it's really a sector that's gotten capital discipline. It's playing nice with ESG investors. I've said this all before on your show. I think energy is now finally investable again, but folks haven't necessarily moved into the sector as aggressively as we would have expected. And a lot of people would agree with you. You're seeing an increasing number of notes coming out saying that, it's, frankly, there's an underallocation to commodities. What about big tech, though? And I do want to shift there just because this morning has been the bulls and the bears on Apple with Dan Ives coming out and saying this is the most attractive time to go all in since 2015. And then JP Morgan actually cutting their earnings forecast for Apple based on a consumer appetite. Where do you sit on this? Well, I'm not a stock analyst, but I would say that there are parts of big tech and there is a more yieldy, quality, maybe old, boring tech areas that have sold off enough to become expensive. So, you know, I think every week after big moves in the market, what we recommend to investors is to just run a simple screen of free cash flow to enterprise value and look for the cheapest 
uh, tech stocks. And and they, you know, the good ones rise to the top. And those are the ones that I think are, are, are likely to outperform. So look for free cash flow at a reasonable price, because as you mentioned, cash is king. I mean, we're moving from zero to three percent on cash. That's all you need to know in this type of a market environment. Savita, just a final question. The index call year end 4,600. Where are we now <coughs> on the S&P? Just short of 4,500. What are you telling clients about your index call? You know, look, I mean, we're neutral on equities. I think the market's going to bounce around a lot. You know, I, I think it's going to hit our target a few times this year and then move higher and lower. It's going to be a year where I believe there are going to be opportunities to add exposure to tech, uh, to energy, to areas of the market that get punished by, you know, the vagaries of, of Fed expectations, et cetera. But 4,600 to me still seems like a reasonable target. Um, I would watch corporate and consumer confidence. If those two measures in the U.S. start to ail and we see CapEx, uh, you know, expectations start to drop, that's when we would get a little bit more bearish on cyclicals. But so far, so mm. good. Savita, wonderful to catch up with you. As always, Likewise. always enjoy the reading of the research out of Bank of America. Savita Subramanian there of B of A Securities. We continue with this uh, discussion and a lot to talk about in a divisive debate on the American economy. And there's no one more qualified than Vincent Reinhardt with his heading of economic research at the Fed and particularly the Greenspan Fed. Chief economist at Venerable Dreyfus and Mellon. We're thrilled that Vince Reinhardt could join us this morning. Vince, a personal note after I finished reading every word of the minutes yesterday. Who writes the minutes for the Fed? When you were at the Fed, were you the guy that wrote the minutes? I signed him for about six or seven years and was involved in drafting uh, for you know a, a decade and a half before that. Uh, but the reality is that, a group, is that a group does it and that ultimately it's the responsibility of the secretary of the FOMC, that would be right. Jim Klaus now. But every uh, draft is seen by every person who was in the FOMC room uh, for those two days. So it really is a group effort. Interesting. Vince, let's talk about this interesting economy. We've seen group, uh, a massive division this morning on Bloomberg surveillance over glass half full, half empty. When you see claims where they are, what does that signal to you about a fully employed America? Uh, the glass is more than half full, and the Federal Reserve is going to have to uh, 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 take a little bit out. And that is a difficult pivot uh, that they're trying to undertake right now. Uh, and uh, just, you know, what was your conversation in the last five minutes? It's really hard to read the data. It was distorted by the pandemic depression. Uh, the, uh, the experts have no idea what the seasonals are. Uh, you have to really appreciate that the information we're getting in real time uh, is, uh, is, is somewhat suspect. Vincent, do you agree with Bill Dudley that if, the, if we do not see more of a sell-off in equities and if we continue to see inflation run as hot as it's been, that the Fed is going to have a more aggressive action against directly trying to torpedo where uh, equity valuations are at this point? Uh, I wouldn't put it that bluntly, but the reality is monetary policy works through financial markets, and unless financial conditions tighten, uh, they're not. Uh, they won't be removing policy accommodation and putting restraint on the economy. 
Uh, the re- reality is that the overnight federal funds rate, the policy rate of the FOMC, uh, doesn't matter a whole lot for anything. It matters how it gets priced in through the yield curve and into other financial asset prices. And unless those prices move in a way that tighten financial conditions, the FOMC will not have accomplished uh, slowing uh, the growth of aggregate demand to something more sustainable, given the level of where we are. So if uh, the market is pricing in several series of 50 basis point rate hikes in a row from the Federal Reserve, as well as potentially $1.1 trillion of Federal uh, Reserve balance sheet reduction over the course of a year, then how much further would the Fed have to go in terms of signaling or even rate hikes to actually tightening conditions enough? Well, uh, one thing to point out is even those succession of half-point hikes uh, imply the real federal funds rate, the nominal federal funds rate less inflation, will still be negative. And that's the measure of policy impetus. So a lot of what the Fed has to do initially is just catch up. Uh, and it, until they are past the catch-up stage, uh, then it's it's time to ask the questions you, you just did. Uh, at a pace of a half point point, point over the next couple meetings, uh, the committee will still have to be tightening well into next year. Inside of Fordham, you have maybe lived the Fed more than anyone we speak to. And from Volcker and with all Lyle Brainerd in the uproar two days ago, from Volcker to where we are now, as you look at it, is the great moderation over? Uh, Yes, uh, I think that's right. We have uh, one way to put it is we've had two generational shocks, uh, a great a a pandemic and uh, a European war in the space of two and a half years. And that's within a a decade of what we thought was the great financial contraction. Uh, We've we've added a lot more to volatility. Importantly, the great moderation was the great anchoring of inflation expectations. Mm -hmm. We achieved what Volcker and Greenspan talked about, uh, a situation in which households and firms weren't concerned about a changeable price level in making their decisions. We're out of that range. Right. And we're probably out of the great moderation as well. So, Vince Reinhart, the money question is, if the moderation is over, Greenspan invented with you along the x-axis this word measured. Are we done being measured? Uh, remember, Greenspan also produced the policy tightening of 1994 and 1995 that included uh, started with quarters, then put in intermediate actions, then 50s, then 75s. Uh, so I think he was willing to do what was appropriate. I think you're right. I think that uh, being measured at this point uh, uh, has some drawbacks. I think a better word than measured is predictable. The Fed could do a lot, but they could let everybody know about what they're going to do. Uh, A feature of 94 and 95 that we forget is markets were really volatile. Uh, There were a number of blow-ups, including Orange County and 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 the prominent hedge funds. Uh, So uh, if you have a more assertive and changeable Fed to address macroeconomic uh, concerns, you might just get a lot more financial market volatility too. Vincent Reinhardt there of Dreyfus and Mellon. Vincent, great to catch up with you, sir. 
This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.